Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Self-Initiative Project Podcast. I'm your host, Jim O'Brien. Hey there, and welcome to Episode 8 of the Self-Initiative Project Podcast. This episode, we're going to be talking about some of the best gun tips that I could assemble here for you. These best gun tips are a combination of things I've pulled together and learned from other resources as well as a lot of them are things that I've learned myself through, you know, seeing things out on the range or just experience personally. So with that, we'll get started. If you haven't been following us on Instagram, we do have an Instagram page I'd love for you to check out for us. It's the Self-Initiative Project, all one word. We've got all kinds of goodies posted up there and lots of information, some fun stuff too. So feel free to tell your family and friends about that and take a look. We would greatly appreciate it. So the first gun tip that I have is safety, right? You'll hear me say this a lot of the time. My number one thing for handling firearms is safety. So with that, we're going to start out with Jeff Cooper's top four gun safety rules. Number one, treat every firearm as if it were loaded at all times. Number two, never let the muzzle of the gun point at anything that you're not willing to destroy. Number three, keep your finger off the trigger until you are ready to shoot. And the fourth rule is always be sure of your target and what's beyond it. So those are the the four safety rules I want to start us out with. Always a good place to start. If you've been following us for a while, you know that our very first episode we ever did was on gun safety, where we talk more in depth about these top four safety rules. And coming up, be on the lookout, because my buddy and I, Dennis, if you remember from the first episode, he and I are planning on doing a part two for gun safety, where we talk about even more things uh, safety-oriented when it comes to handling your firearms. Let's talk about redundancy and where it has a place with firearm safety. I say it a lot, redundancy, redundancy, redundancy. It's kind of a joke in there, right? But it's so true. There is a place for redundancy, and it's completely appropriate when we're handling our firearms. For example, you want to make sure that you want to be going through techniques and procedures redundant in a redundant fashion to ensure that the firearm is clear. And and that's a great example of where redundancy has its place. And this is a particularly important when you're in your house or wherever, whether you're doing dry fire practicing, which we'll talk a little bit more in a bit, or you're uh, getting ready to clean your firearm. That redundancy to ensure that weapon has been cleared and checked and the magazines are out, bolts back, whatever it is, is so important. And another great example of where redundancy is key and people says, oh, it's a little over the top, but there's no such thing as over the top when it comes to handling a firearm correctly, safely, is at the gun shop. You have the salesperson behind the counter. If they take a firearm off the wall or out of the cabinet, out of the, out of the uh, counter to show you, they should be pulling the bolt open of that gun, the slide back on that firearm, opening the roller on that revolver to ensure there are no, there is no ammo in that gun. There are no bullets in that gun before handing that firearm over to you. The moment that you get that firearm, this is where the redundancy starts. Because the first thing you're going to do when you take that firearm out of their hand is you're also going to, at the very least, look down in the chamber if the slides open or the bolts back to ensure it is indeed empty. And if the slides not back or the bolts not open, you're going to take a second to clear that weapon and make sure it's in a good state for your satisfaction as well. And there are no bullets in it. 
when you get through looking over that firearm, hopefully you're making a purchase decision. But when you get through looking over that firearm there at the sales counter, you want to go through the process again, opening the slide, pulling back the bolt, whatever it is to make sure there's not been any ammo introduced. It's just a good sign. It's just a good reason for redundancy. It shows respect to the sales personnel, too, that you're safety conscious and want to make sure you're not handing them a loaded weapon back. And then. A lot of the times you'll definitely see the sales clerk look and go through the same process again before process again before hanging that firearm back up on the wall or putting it back in the cabinet. So redundancy has its place. One of the big topics that's talked about often in the gun industry and one that I feel very strongly about is should I open carry or should I concealed carry? Open versus concealed. And it's my opinion, as well as several others in the industry, that open carry is just not an option. If you're allowed to carry, you as a person who's had your background checked and been cleared to carry, you should only be concealed carrying. Uh, Law enforcement, military, security personnel, if you work at a gun range maybe, or if you're the owner of a large farm or ranch, then you probably have a good excuse to be open carrying. Outside of those, you shouldn't. But in those cases, you know, you're probably wanting to show the ability to apply that level of force uh, if necessary in order to dissuade the bad guys from potentially doing something in the first place. Right. And in the case of law enforcement, military or security, obviously, and maybe even at the gun range, if you work at the gun range, you might be paid to to be prepared and, and open carry has to be an option for you and what your job entails. And, you know, open carry can be faster from the draw from the holster than concealed carry, you know, having to get through a bunch of layers of clothes or even lifting up a T-shirt to get to the firearm. You know, having your gun right there on your holster can be faster. But for us generally carrying out in the open public, aside from maybe being a little faster to draw from than concealed, let's consider the cons of open carrying. First and foremost, in the event that something were to go wrong, bad, bad guys were to enter the place and whatever, because you're open carrying, you're likely going to be the first one seen or you're going to be found out. And because you're open carrying, they figure they need to deal with you first. Because of this first point that I make, you know, you're not only potentially endangering yourself for open carrying, but anybody around you, right? Those around you. One of the drawbacks, and I remember recently in a large outdoor retail store I was in, uh, a young man came in and he was open carrying a pair of shorts and t-shirt, but he was carrying his pistol on his hip, open for everybody. You know, one of the bad things about open carrying, especially in the, the, the culture, the, not the culture, but the environment and the state of the world, things are these days, you know. When you open carry, no one around you out in public really has an effective, reliable means to identify you. No one knows whether or not you're actually a good guy or a bad guy. So you can make the public kind of nervous, not knowing uh, how to behave or how to react to you open carry. So that's just something, you know, consideration of the others, consideration of the public and where you're going to be open carry. Does that really make the most sense? You know, and to be quite honest, for those of us that do have some training and know more about what we're doing, because you're opting to open carry, to us, in my opinion, 
it's evident that you likely don't know what it is you're doing, right? Because if you'd been through the right types of training, you'd surrounded yourself with those in the know and have the knowledge, you probably know already that you shouldn't be opening open carrying. And the fact that you are tells me that you don't have the training to know what you're doing in the first place. And you could wind up being more dangerous for yourself and those around you than helpful. And unless you're just trying to be blatant about it and carrying where it's, you know, open carrying where it's not legally permitted, in which case you're going to have your own set of issues to deal with, open carrying serves no point whatsoever, political or otherwise at this point. It just doesn't. You know, a lot of places allow permit open carry, but it serves no purpose. Is it exercising your right? Absolutely. Sure it is. But there's a lot of rights you can exercise as a person, like burning yourself or jumping off the roof of your house or jumping off the bridge when your buddy says to do it. Not a great point. So why would you ever want to do it? And, you know, I think a lot of people open carry because they think it's cool to be seen carrying a gun on their hip. Are you really as cool as you think you are open carrying? Nope. Not even a little bit. So, you know, as I mentioned briefly, open carry is already generally uh, a right that we have anyway that can be exercised. So it's not like as if you're carrying open, whether you're slinging your AR-15 over your shoulder or carrying a pistol on your hip. It's not like you're making any point. Most of us, a great number of us, already have the option. And if you're doing it where it's not legally accepted, you're likely going to have some issues on your hand, and rightfully so. And as I mentioned previously, if you're open carrying it's fairly evident that you really don't have the training that you need to be using that firearm properly anyway, because open carry is something we know we just don't do. If you had the training and op and knowledge, you wouldn't be open carrying in the first place. So that's all I'm going to say about that. While on the subject of doing what you should be doing, which is concealed carry, which means you keep your firearm hidden, no one around you should ever know that you're actually carrying a firearm, AKA concealed which you do have to have a permit for, you're going to need to, you know, it's kind of, they say it's kind of a lifestyle change, right? And I, I kind of agree with it. You got to, uh, you got to watch where you go. You got to watch the type of clothing that you wear, or try to wear you, you know, you may not be going out with the bar to the bars of the buddies drinking or drinking as much as you once were, whatever it is you find that works for yourself. It is a bit of a lifestyle change. Um, so you do need to think about wearing the appropriate uh, clothing. And, you know, when you begin to carry concealed, it does mean a general change of wardrobe or the way you dress. Uh, and this can be true, especially for women. But with that said, there are plenty of options out there. If you just get online and see what some of the, even the women in the firearms community are wearing and talking about and doing for themselves, you'll learn, you'll see that while it does change some things, it's not super limiting in what you have available for wearing. But for example, you know, tight fitting t-shirts are probably uh, going to no longer have a place in your wardrobe if you're looking to carry. Uh, shirts that are super short or have a tendency to ride up all the time are going to be out. You know, and again, if you're carrying concealed, no one but your closest loved ones and relatives and maybe your buddies that also concealed and so, you know, you all know that you carry. No one outside of yourself and your the people that you're closest with should have any inkling whatsoever that you're carrying a firearm. 
I mean, that's why they call it concealed in the first place, right? So, you know, I someone was talking about it recently, and it's a great point. You know, you go to hug your friend or a co-worker even or someone at church. For example, men have a tendency to hi- hug high while m- women have a tendency to hug low. If you haven't ever noticed that before, pay attention. It's very true. Very, very astute observation. So as a concealed firearm carrier, you might want to start thinking about, especially when you're hugging someone that you don't know or isn't close enough to you to know or understand that you're con- concealed carrying, you might want to go in low to force them to have to go high and hugging you. Uh, just to be conscientiously aware so you're not giving away that you're concealed carrying because in all likelihood you're going to be carrying around the waistline so you want to keep others away from that point. So one of the other big things that you want to be cognizant of when you're concealed carrying is you don't want to be adjusting your belt, your pants, you know, pulling your pants up, making a lot of movement around your hips and waist because for those that are looking or for those that would know, or if you're really obvious about it, even those that may not be in the know, it'll be pretty apparent that you're carrying and trying to get away with hiding something around that area. So you want to be cognizant. You want to wear the right clothes to begin with. You want to have your belt adjusted right to begin with. And then when when you get to where you're going, you want to try to keep your hands away from your belt line and your waist. Um, and, and getting the right wardrobe and the right gear will help with that. The right belts, the right holsters, you know, playing it cool. That's the idea. Again, no one around you should know that you're carrying concealed because that would be defeating the purpose of concealment, correct? When you elect to carry concealed, it does mean more responsibility. Part of that responsibility is not only knowing what to wear and not to be adjusting and not to print, print meaning seeing the firearm through whatever clothing you're wearing, but it also means getting the training and learning, having some idea of what it is you're doing and, and what it means to engage should you need to respond to a threat or something bad that has gone down. So while we're on the topic of concealment and clothing, and you may or may not know, you know, you shouldn't know when someone's concealed carrying, for those of you that are kind of anti-gun, not a proponent of gun, but maybe you're aware that someone's carrying Or maybe you're just fine with guns and you happen to know your buddy's carrying and something bad happens. Please don't be the person that starts yelling at your buddy to do something, to do something, pull out your gun. Why don't you do anything? Why don't you shoot back? Gosh, you got a gun. Why aren't you helping anybody out? Keep your mouth quiet. Let them make the decision for themselves when and if they're going to engage and, and pull that firearm from concealment. It's their job to make that decision. And the only thing you're doing is getting them and yourself uh, to the point of being hurt, possibly killed. So keep that in mind. Don't, don't, don't uh, call out the person uh, if they aren't responding to a situation you happen to catch yourself in with them. Uh, do yourselves, do both of you a favor and don't do that. Not cool at all. Let's talk about carry placement. And, you know, I should have started off with this. Most of this, most of these tips we'll talk about here today have to do with pistols, carrying concealed, training from concealment, um, handling a pistol, whether it be a semi-automatic or revolver. 
in the context of shooting and or potentially defensive situations. But some of these things have to do with firearms overall, firearms in general. So like our four safety rules, obviously it applies across the board, but just in case it doesn't go without saying, you know, when we talk about concealment, we're generally talking about pistols, right? So I just want to throw that out on the board. So with that, let's talk about carry placement and where on the body is a concealed carrier. I should look to carry my weapon. Uh, there's a handful here we'll talk about. One is generally the four or five o'clock position back on your hip around your kidney area. One is appendix, meaning front of the hips, generally dead center or off to one side or the other, depending on if you're left-handed or right hand. One is the small of your back. Another is cross draw. In other words, like, for example, I'm right handed, but I might carry my weapon on my left hand side. So I have to reach across the front of my body to grab the grip, to grab the handle, to draw it out. And of course, you know, the one we're all familiar with and seen on television going back as far as I can remember, for example, is the shoulder holster. You know, the detectives have their polyester sports coats on and they happen to have a shoulder holster in there. So let's talk about a little bit about each one of these. For concealed carry, the four or five o'clock position, anywhere in that range, 3.30 to 5.30, let's say, is a pretty common place to carry concealed, right? On the hip, out of the way, not in the small of the back, not right on the side of your hip, but towards the back. The idea is as you're moving towards someone, you know, it might make it a little bit more challenging to see that firearm, even though, again, if I'm wearing the right the right clothing, it shouldn't be an issue. If I'm not printing, it should be an issue. But perhaps the idea was that if it sits squarely on my hip, it stands the chance of printing being seen a little bit more. Uh, Plus with my hip movement, it might make it stand out a little bit more. So that's why we get it a little off from the side, back behind us and out of the way. And again, this is pretty common, pretty effective. If with practice and training, you can learn how to draw from this position uh, fairly effectively and fairly quickly. And it is a common one. The next one, appendix carry. This one, it seems like to me, we're seeing and hearing a lot more of in the industry these days. And again, to me, it, it could just be me. But this is where we carry a firearm, either dead center up front, or to the left of the right of us on one hip or the other, again, forward of the hips. Uh, The idea being is that it keeps the firearm potentially in better control of you because it's right in front and you can operate with things in that front, front space more easily. And additionally, the argument is, is drawing from appendix can be quicker from others. And I can say there's some merit to the quickness of appendix. The biggest drawback that I think, and reasonably so, the biggest fear drawback to carrying appendix is folks are concerned that their firearm is pointing to their private parts, to their junk, uh, their lady parts, whatever you want to reference it, whatever you happen to have. Uh, Or it's pointing to the femoral artery, which potentially could go south in a hurry for us too. With that being said, it's like anything. You need to be putting safety at the forefront of any training that you're doing or any any type of carrying position that you're thinking about. And again, training from that position is of paramount importance because at the end of the day, you're going to carry where A, you're most comfortable 
and be your most familiar. And you're only going to get comfortable and familiar with that position at, through using it in training and practice. But appendix has some merit again, because the idea is it's forward of the hips. It might be easier to stay control of that firearm should hand to hand, you know, empty hand it scenario, self-defense scenario happen. And two, it can be quicker. Uh, let's talk about for the, from the small of the back. Now, I remember growing up watching Magnum P.I. I know that dates me a little bit. But just for one example we've seen in Hollywood and television and movies, right, is that maybe I don't even have a holster. Maybe I'm just sticking that firearm in the small of my back to carry it. And, you know, yeah, could you do it? Sure. It's probably not the smartest way to carry it, and here's why. And it's something that reported gunfighters and those that fancy themselves a gunfighter don't think about gunfighting is a last resort and all likelihood before it gets to that you're going to be doing some verbal judo working on some de-escalation hopefully you've just left the scene or been able to leave the scene there's going to be a whole lot of things going on and one of the things that might likely go on before you need to get to that firearm or even have the opportunity to get that firearm is a scuffle a hand-to-hand scuffle And as we've heard and know, a lot of times, if not the majority of the times, scuffles wind up on the ground. And let me tell you something. If you fall down backwards on that firearm that happens to be in the small of your back, where is that? That's generally centered over your spine. Best case scenario, you're going to have some good bruising going on. Worst case scenario, you could potentially hurt yourself pretty badly if you were to fall back on your gun, whether it be your spine, your hip, your tailbone, whatever it is. So just want to put some light and illuminate the fact that a lot of things had to have gone bad for you to have to go to a firearm to begin with, and you could likely find yourself on your backside before that ever happens. And when we talk about these carrying positions, I hope it would go without saying, but I'm going to say it here just because we're talking about best tips. So here's one. You should never be carrying a firearm on your person unless it's in a good quality holster, fully covering the trigger and trigger guard. I'm just going to say that right now. So let's move on from the small of the back to this idea of cross draw. And when we talk about cross draw, really and truly shoulder holsters are just another form of cross draw. But whether it's on your hip, your waist, uh, and it would generally be from... You know, if you're right-handed, it would be from, say, your left hip all the way across to your center line where the grip of your pistol's facing towards your right-hand side where you have to reach across with your right-hand side. Obviously, if you're left-handed, it would be the opposite where the gun would be on your right-hand side. But you're having to... the bottom line is, is that you're having to reach across your body to get to the grip of that firearm to draw it out. And just to keep the subject shorter... The shoulder holster presents the same issue, right? I have to reach across my body to draw that firearm out of the shoulder holster, which sits between my rib cage and the inside of my arm. So underneath my armpit in order to draw it. Well, the cross draw scenario across the board presents the biggest problem is that as I draw that weapon, the, the muzzle of that firearm potentially is flagging, covering, or just you know, layman's term, pointing at a lot of objects and or people or animals, children, whatever, before I can get it up on target. So for concealed carry, and and I would contend any sort of carrying in general, 
I would argue that cross-drawing, it should be off the table for consideration across the board. And as far as shoulder holsters go, when you draw that weapon out, you're at the very least likely going to flag your own left arm. Of course, again, if you're drawing with your right with your right hand, like I would be, you're likely going to flag your left arm, just getting it out of the holster to begin swinging it around to getting up on target. If you just go through these motions with no firearm involved, if you go through these motions, you try to figure out how to get that gun pointing straight ahead without having the muzzle of that gun point out a lot of things potentially before you get it there. So I would definitely not recommend cross draw from the hip or even shoulder harness uh, underneath the armpit because it could end badly uh, for you or someone that's around you. But again, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. Like so many things, it all boils down to what you've trained with the most and what you're most comfortable with the most, what you're most comfortable with the most. Uh, But you've got to have that training and know what you're doing to be able to even know what way you like to carry or prefer to carry in the first place. And I, again, I would just cross, cross draw off the list altogether. You know, recently we had an episode where we talked about training versus gear. I had a buddy of mine, Van Seeley, come on and he talked about, very passionate about the fact that all these people pay a lot of money on gear, fancy pants gear, expensive gear, but, but you know, won't do the training because they say the training's too expensive. And I won't get into that now, but if you want to go back a few episodes and listen to our training versus gear episode, it was fairly popular and Van makes a lot of good points in that. So let's talk about training. You know, part of training is just going to the range and practicing, right? The worst thing you can do is become a concealed carry person, uh, get your concealed carry permit, and then elect to shoot or shoot very, uh, elect not to shoot or shoot very seldom. The whole point is to go get the training, get the practice, get comfortable, get familiar with your firearm, how you're going to carry it, how you're going to use it. But, you know, cost can be a concern. I mean, going to the range and shooting at some paper can be fairly expensive. That's one of the least expensive means of training. You know, once you figure out a couple of drills you want to or techniques or procedures you want to work on every time you go, you know, that can be fairly inexpensive because, you know, hopefully you've already got a firearm, but you're just going to be buying the paper target and the bullets and then you can train and practice. But if you want to go less expensive, one of the best things you can do to improve shooting for yourself is dry fire practice. And dry fire is a little misnomer, but effectively dry firing means without ammunition, right? And so it doesn't get any cheaper than that. Set aside some time, get your firearm, make sure that the ammo is separated and your firearm is empty and start working that trigger control. But when you're dry firing, you know, you also want to be cognizant of your safety. You still don't want to point that firearm at things you're not willing to destroy, things or people or your pets in your house that you're willing to destroy. I recommend not only making sure the firearm is clear and empty of ammo, you know, no bullets. I would put the bullets in a completely different room from where I'm trying to do my dry fire practice. That's just a good practice to get into. That way there's no possible means, or at least it's a lot more difficult to introduce ammo into a dry fire area space that you want to be working in. But, you know, dry firing is excellent. It's excellent for a few reasons. A, you can work on your sight alignment and sight picture. In other words, what it's like to get those three dots 
those three sites, the front site and the two rear lined up together properly, left, right, up and down, windage and elevation. And more importantly, it's great for learning trigger control, your breathing, focusing on squeezing that trigger back until you hear it go click, continuing the follow through before releasing it. And of course, if you're using a semi-automatic, you're going to have to rack the slide because there's no ammo in there doing it for you automatically. But the goal is you're working on fundamentals that will necessarily make you better as a shooter if you practice it regularly. Um, I, I can't recommend dry firing enough. Uh, they even make some fancy pants uh, lasers with associated targets. You can get even uh, one uh, that you can shoot at a piece of paper target and your smartphone sitting in front of it will pick up on the lasers shot at the piece of paper downrange and it'll tell you how you're shooting, where you're shooting and make it look like you're shooting the actual piece of paper. Uh, dry firing is an excellent way to teach the basics or keep practicing the basics while improving and it doesn't get any cheaper. I mean, assuming you've got a firearm uh, of your own, which hopefully at some point you will, if you've elected to start shooting, and more importantly, you're now deciding to concealed carry, you're likely got your firearm already. It doesn't get any cheaper than dry firing, so I highly recommend that. Let's talk about cleaning your weapon. You should keep a clean firearm at all times. And, you know, when I was growing up and when I was in the Boy Scout and at summer Boy Scouts and summer camp and everything else, you know, I, I constantly had it drilled in my head after you should clean your firearm after every time you shoot it. And so that's what I did for the longest time as a kid growing up with my 22 rifles or whatever, or my 12 gauges, whatever I was out in the woods shooting or at the range practicing with, I'd come home and clean my gun. Do I do that these days? Mm, I got to be honest, not so much. Uh, most of the firearms that I carry on myself for defensive purposes, I feel like can go quite a number of rounds before I absolutely need to clean them. Do I let my firearms get completely filthy without wiping them down or swabbing out the barrel at least a couple of times? No. Because again, I know that a firearm, a clean firearm is an effective firearm because it's going to likely shoot better when I do need to pull the trigger and just keeping a firearm clean is safer. So do I clean it after every time I go to the range to shoot or train or practice whatever? No, but I do make it a point to clean my firearms regularly and so should you. Uh, you know, if you watch the news or on social media, you probably hear about someone shooting themselves in the foot or the hand or their buddy in the room or their kid because they weren't vigilant in their safety when cleaning. I can't emphasize safety enough when it comes to handling your firearms, whatever it is, whether it's carrying it, going to the range, dry fire practice in your, in your living room, or cleaning your firearm, especially cleaning your firearm where you get more comfortable and relax and just assume the weapon's empty because you're at home. The number one rule is just assume that all, treat all firearms as if they were loaded at all times. You want to make sure that firearm's empty. And again, like dry firing, I'd just say, put your ammo and your magazine that's loaded and ready to go. I would put it in a totally different room from where you're cleaning just to make it that much more difficult to introduce ammo into an area that you've created safe so you can complete the cleaning of your firearm. 
Let's talk about using and carrying a quality holster. Now, we mentioned a minute ago when we were talking about the different carrying positions, you definitely need to be carrying using a holster. I don't care if the holster's in your vehicle, it's on your nightstand, it's you know in your waistband, on your ankle, wherever you're carrying, you need to make sure it's in a good quality holster. And, you know, like Van said, and like we talked about in that one episode, training should come above gear. But one piece of gear that you should absolutely invest a fair amount in is a good quality holster. And look, there's plenty of them out there today, right? Some you can buy right off the store shelf. Even some of the ones that were once almost 100% custom ordered online now are making enough of the more popular firearm model versions of themselves that they're being stocked in some local gun stores. So it's not that hard even to get the good stuff. Uh, but you want to get a holster that has good retention. In other words, holds the firearm snugly in the holster and one that has full and complete trigger coverage, you know, including even the trigger guard. That's very important. But as I said, there's lots of good ones out there. There's a hundred percent Kydex, there's a hundred percent leather, and you can get even there's several, well, lots of hybrids, you know, what they call hybrids, which is a combination. You'll generally have a leather uh, back face or plate to it and kydex will go on top so it's kind of a uh, a split between those two uh, avoid cheaper materials i know there's a lot of hype around cheap equipment cheap holsters them being comfortable some of the materials are very light and comfortable but at the end of the day they won't hold up that well so i would i would say without mentioning any names um, i would say to avoid some of the cheaper uh, short-lived, more short-lived holster materials like neoprene or some of the more typical uh, cheaper plastics being used. You know, plastic's not the same as Kydex. Kydex is a lot tougher compared to a lot of the plain Jane plastics being used in some of the less expensive holsters. So I would caution you and just stick to what's the good stuff. And just about anybody out there will tell you uh, what the good stuff is and, and to, you know, dare I say, splurge a little bit on a good quality holster. Uh, you also want to make sure your holster has good clips. Some are better than others. You generally can't go wrong with metal, but that's not to say some of these thicker plastic ver variations don't work either. Uh, you can look at them, though, like a lot of things and tell what's chintzy and cheap and weak versus some of the better ones. You know... At a, at a time, custom holsters, especially some of the better quality holsters, were almost 100% online. You know, the irony, right? Now everything's online. But, um, you know, a lot of them, you, you need to go online and order it. But there's so many good brands of holsters. And this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list. These are just ones that I've had personal experience with that I can vouch for. Crossbreed is excellent. It's an example of a quality hybrid uh, variation. I have several crossbreeds. They're comfortable. They're just super nice. Have I had one for 20 years yet? Nope. But do I use them and use them regularly? Have I used them a lot? Yep. Um, my my crossbreed that I carry my Glocks in is well-worn, well-used, and I can tell you it holds up. CompTech is another one, outstanding uh, piece of equipment. Black Point Tactical uh, makes good stuff, and 
as well as cooks. And the thing that I keep hearing great things about cooks is, is that their willingness to make customized things for you. I mean, from what I've heard, you can ask those guys to make just about anything, any color, any prints, uh, whatever you like. Very good. I've had some luck uh, with 100% leather from Fist, which is a guy out of New York make some very good leather holsters as well as G code. I've had some experience with G code, which I think mostly for Smith and Glock, if not a hundred percent for Glock, but what they are producing uh, seems to be really nice quality. And like I said, I've had a lot of experience and own several crossbreeds, but now in the case of like the crossbreeds, the black point tactical, the cooks, um, you can find those in some of your, our local gun stores. So like I said, some of these quality things you're able to get off the shelf, assuming your firearm is a popular model. So some, just some options there, uh, but several to choose from for sure. So while we're on the subject of reholstering and depending on where you get your training and who your tr- teacher is or who your buddy is, you're asked their opinion of, this is a subject that you might hear some mixed results, but I'm just going to tell you what my best gun tip for you is. When it comes to reholstering, you, you know, you've had a situation that you've had to draw from concealment. We've already talked about we're not going to draw open holster because we're not carrying open, but we've had to draw from concealment in a defensive situation, and now it's time to reholster. Well, when is it the time to reholster? Well, it's after the things have gone down. You've made sure the coast is clear. Two things is, A, there's no more bad guys out in front of you that you might have to deal with potentially or defend yourself against. And two, you've made sure that any threat that you've dealt with is down and has been stopped. Then it's time to reholster. If you're at the range and you're practicing, you know, you're, you're shooting the paper, you're working on a couple of techniques that you picked up in class the last training session you got, or you're working a couple of drills you found out about, when it's time to reholster after those shots, you want to be sure to look to put that holster back. Now, is it as cool as not looking and knowing just your hand just knows where right back to go right back to again? No, but you're not trying to look cool. You're trying to get that firearm returned back to the holster as safely as you possibly can. And the the saying that I heard that I, I stick with, and I'm going to tell it to you too, is quick out, slow in. Meaning, you know, if you're having to draw that firearm, you better be quick out of that holster. But when it's time to put it back, it's slow and easy and calculated, and you're looking where it's going. You know, you'll see a lot of guys reholstering without looking and they're able to get it in there because, you know, it's like if you ride motorcycles, you just know where the foot pegs are. You raise your feet up off the ground when you start off from the stoplight and you don't have to look where the foot pegs are. And if you train enough, you know, you can put that gun back in the holster, but that's not the point. What if it's wintertime and you've got a jacket on that has the elastic drawstrings or tassels on it? And that gets caught up in your trigger guard and you wind up shooting yourself because the tassel pulled the trigger when you weren't looking. What if, what if a part of your, I don't know, something hanging out of your pocket, whatever it is, something could have gotten into that trigger guard and press that trigger. All you were trying to do was reholster it. You know, there's no merit to holstering, reholstering quickly uh, because the fight's over. Or whatever you're practicing on is over. So just go slow. Uh, It's just 
going to be safer at the end of the day. It's going to be safer for you and it's going to be safer potentially for anybody that's standing behind you as well because you're looking and you want to make sure everything's cleared out of the way, which looking enables you to do. And you want to also make sure that fit trigger finger is off the trigger when you go to reholster. Uh, there was a gentleman that actually shot himself in the thigh because he reholstered with his trigger finger still in place. So that's not good. Remember, out quick and in slow. And, and look, the argument for not looking at your holster is maybe something might pop up again downrange that you'll have to deal with. So you don't want to take your eyes off the bad guys. And typically this would be true, right? If I was telling you in a self-defense empty hand scenario, even when backing away, you don't take your eyes off the bad guy. But at the end of the day, if you're still concerned that you need to be dealing with potential bad guys or you need to re-engage a bad guy that you've already stopped, you thought you stopped the threat with, you don't, you're not to the point of being able to reholster or needing to reholster yet anyway. So do what you need to do. And then when you go reholster, do it slowly, do it intentionally and look. And I won't beat that horse to death anymore. This next one and, and, you know, this is another one that I'm fairly passionate about. And I've even had to have the conversation with my own dad is look, if you're going to carry for defensive purposes, if, if you're lawfully carrying with a concealed carry permit, you know, a concealed carry weapons permit, as they call them here in Georgia, a CCW, you need to be carrying with a chambered round period. There are some military groups like the IDF, you know, the Israeli Defense Forces, and there's some military groups in the Philippines, I think it is, that practice and train and know how to go to work without a round in the chamber. In other words, that's that's either their government regulations, you know, the the police or military regulations that they have because of their environments, their They've found that they're better off not carrying with a round chamber for whatever reason they're doing it. We're not the IDF here. We generally can't and don't train that way. There's no reason for us to not have a round in the chamber. The only reason that you could come up with for not carrying with a round round in the chamber is that you're not comfortable carrying a loaded weapon. And if that's the case, let me break it to you. You're not ready to carry concealed yet, and you need to go get some training so you can get more comfortable with carrying concealed. And more important, you more importantly, you learn why you need to be carrying with a round in the chamber. If you're not carrying a round in the chamber, it's useless. You will never get a round chamber or likely not going to be able to be successful getting a round chambered in order to be effective with it. And So much so that enough time may go by that the bad guy can get your gun away from you and use it on you, if nothing else is a hammer. So if you're going to carry, carry with a round chambered. If you're not comfortable with that, then go train, train, train until you do get comfortable with it. If you feel like that's not an option for you, then you probably need to reconsider carrying concealed, carrying, you know, again, we're talking about lawful law-abiding citizens, you probably just need to consider the fact that carrying concealed and carrying being ready for a defensive scenario is is not your uh, not in the cards for you. 
This next one uh, is more of a pet peeve of mine. It, it, I, I classified it here as best tips for you, but and they are tips definitely, but it all hinges on safety. So I'm certified NRA range safety officer, RSO. I had the privilege of volunteering uh, part-time occasionally on weekends for a little over a year at a local gun range that I support. And I got to see a lot of things that I didn't want to see. I got to, uh, I would like to think I got to head off a lot of potential issues that could have gone south otherwise. But at the end of the day, I got, a, I got to see a lot of things that are inexcusable. Um, you can't be vigilant enough uh, when it comes to handling firearms correctly and safely. So let me just talk about some of the things that I've seen repetitively on the range and what needs to happen instead will hopefully become be very, very, very apparent. I've seen people in the aisles, in their booths, getting ready to shoot, point their weapons straight at their buddy or their loved one that they were shooting with for the day and not think twice about it. I've seen people turn around, swing around with guns in their hands and flag, cover, point their gun, you know, unintentionally, I assume, at practically every person in the gun range possible because they weren't paying attention to their doing. I've seen more trigger I've seen more fingers left on the trigger than I can count whether they're in between taking shots down range pointing their weapon at their loved one or their buddy that they're in the booth with shooting or as they spin around flagging covering everyone in the room with their finger on the trigger still I had one woman walk right up to me, not only pointing her weapon at me, but her finger on the trigger. And so I, I mention all those things that I've seen happen and not just happen once or on occasion, but regularly to remind you the importance of those first four safety rules, if nothing else. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're just getting started out or it's been a while since you've shot or you've just bought a new gun, whatever the quote-unquote reasoning or excuse could be, I would not want something horrible to happen to somebody near you or around you because you weren't being as careful as you needed to be. These aren't toys. I don't want to talk down to anyone, but a firearm's not a toy, and you don't need to treat it as such. Learn the safety rules and be vigilant about following them. Be aware of that muzzle at all times. Keep your finger off the trigger until you're actually pointing down range at the, tri- at the uh, target and you're ready to shoot. Uh, and the other one that I'd like to uh, remind everyone of it of is don't load, don't take your firearms in and out of their bags behind the firing line. Take the bag up to the aisle, your booth, unload it there, take the bag back wherever and, and put it down. And certainly don't load and unload your firearms off the firing line. Never load or unload your firearms off the firing line. Wait until you're inside the booth pointing the gun in a safe direction to clear it or to reload it again if you're going to carry it or put it away that way. You really shouldn't be storing firearms uh, loaded anyway because over time I guarantee you'll forget that it's loaded. And last but not least, on the flip side of that corner, 
quarter, I should say. On the flip side of that quarter, when you're at the gun range, it is your responsibility to be responsible for you. This not only means following the proper gun safety rules, but this also means being vigilant and watching those around you. Don't be so blind inside your shooting stall, your booth, your aisle, whatever you call it at your gun range. Don't be so blind and caught up in shooting and having fun that you're not paying attention to those people that are loading and unloading their guns on the table that happens to be behind your booth. Don't be so caught up in what it is you're doing that you're not paying attention to those around you because those around you are the ones that potentially are doing unsafe things that could have impact and potentially devastating consequences for you and someone you're at the range shooting with. So I know I'm harping on safety, but I always harp on safety. And at the end of the day, you really should too. So going back to what we've talked about a little bit before is get some training. If you're new and it's your first time, ask questions, get the guidance, have a once over of the safety rules and proper handling of any firearm you decide to shoot, whether it's something new you bought to yourself because you thought it was cool or you're renting something from behind the, the shop before you go out on the range. Don't be shy, ask questions, get guidance and have a once over of safety and how that firearm operates. If you're new and you've just gotten a new firearm, take the time to read that manual from cover to cover. It'll not only give you tips and tricks for, you know, breaking down the weapon correctly for cleaning, but it'll also uh, point out all the parts and how that firearm functions. So at least you have some knowledge of the basics before you go to use it for the first time. Or if it's been six plus months since the last time you've shot, refresh your memory. It won't hurt. It'll only serve to make things better for you and more than likely more safe as well. And again, if you don't know something, go and get some training. Ask somebody. Even private lessons one-on-one are not that expensive in the overall scheme of things if it means that you'll be better and more safe. If I'm your firearms instructor, I'm going to teach you how to shoot and learn the basics, but I'm most concerned with safety and how safe you are. I could care less how well you shoot. That will come in time with practice, but I'm going to be focused on safety. And I I can't emphasize that enough, as I've already said about a dozen times here. If you're a seasoned shooter, still go get some training, especially if it's been six plus months since you've shot left. Get some training, keep training and practicing Every time you go to the drill, every time you go to the range, you shouldn't be just shooting at paper uh, unless you're a competition shooter and that's where you have your focus, which is perfectly fine. I can't inf- I can't I can't talk highly enough about the spirit of competition shooting, how fun it is, how it brings people together, how it's so cool to see yourself improve and be able to k- knock out those bullseyes at further and further distances out. If you're competition shooting, by all means, go and practice and shoot the piece of paper and and enjoy it and get better and introduce your friends and family to it because I bet they'll have fun doing it too. If you're learning or you're carrying a firearm for defensive purposes, your shooting uh, reasoning and your shooting techniques are arguably considerably different than the competition shooter. And you don't need to be going just plinking at paper, except when you're bored and just want to go once in a while. And that's perfectly fine too. But as the defensive shooter or as the, as the lawful concealed carrying person, 
needs to do. They need to be focused on techniques. They need to be working on a different procedure or technique. Every time they go to the range, they need to be working on what they just learned in any training classes they had. And ideally, instead of just plinking at paper for 50 rounds or 100 rounds, make every round count. Go and get you learn about a couple of drills that you think you want to try for yourself. Uh, two of my favorite, just as examples that I use regularly that help make me such a better shooter is one is called the dot torture test. And it's fantastic because it makes you work everything in different numbers. You'll, you'll do, uh, you'll do a strong hand, weak hand, double taps, multiple uh, targets, uh, reloads. It's just a good way to train a lot of different things and you can do it all in 50 rounds. And the other one that I like that I use regularly is what's called the two by two by two drill. Now it's meant to be two rounds in two seconds at 20 feet, meaning I pull my firearm from my holster, which is concealed. Of course, I put two rounds on target in two seconds and I can do that in 50 rounds too. So none of this stuff is super time consuming. I can do either one of these in probably 20 minutes or less in most cases. I only really need to use 50 rounds for either one, but there are a lot of other uh, drills out there that you can find for yourself that work to make you more effective uh, shooter. You'll have fun doing it because I got to tell you, these drills are a lot of fun and you're not just wasting ammo plinking at paper because again, if you're carrying, you need to be doing something more working to get better. Um, because if you were find yourself in a in a scenario, a situation where you're going to need to use that firearm in a defensive or tactical scenario, you're going to want to be as effective and proficient as you possibly can be. I believe it was episode four, but if you go and look at our list of podcasts, you'll find the training versus gear. I'll talk about that one for a moment. It's outstanding. Van talks a lot about the importance of choosing training versus some of the silly gear that we'll find ourselves wanting and purchasing for firearms that we only shoot once every nine months. Uh, Get that training, but listen to that episode if you haven't yet. One of the best tips that I can give you, uh, bits of advice that I can give you is don't look to the movies on and TV on how guns should be handling. And if you are, stop. It's the last place you need to get any sort of advice on firearm handling or usage. Uh, in movies and television, I know I see it all the time, guns get pointed at everybody. And if they're not the bad guys, they're still getting covered, flagged with the barrel of the good guy's gun because he's got no clue who's around him or it doesn't matter because he's not pulling the trigger. Whatever their philosophy is in doing it, I suspect that gun safety is a very small to having no significant uh, role in the script or storyline. So that's why they're not focused on it. Uh, But, you know, they're pointing their firearms at everybody. How many times have you seen some guy's finger on the trigger? I was watching a classic uh, movie that arguably is a Christmas time movie with a big action hero. And one of the cops at the end, when he kills the bad guy, when he gets through shooting the bad guy, he's still got his finger on the trigger. Uh, it seems like every movie, every television show where guns are involved, somebody has their finger on the trigger when they shouldn't have. And I'm not talking about when they're shooting. They're just walking around with their fingers on the trigger. Uh, Think about it. Next time you watch something involving guns, watch how many basic gun safety rules are broken. 
And, you know, the other thing that we'll see in movies and in Hollywood and on TV a lot is warning shots, right? Shooting over the people's heads. Let me tell you, most states that I know about, most places, a warning shot's illegal. Warning shots are illegal and rightfully so. If you, if you shoot a warning shot, you deserve whatever happens to you. I know that's a strong statement. But that's true. A, you're likely going to get shot and killed if you're shooting warning shots at somebody that's got guns and or shooting back to you. You're probably going to get yourself killed. B, where is that round going for going to? You're accountable for every round that goes down range, meaning that's shot out the end of your gun. Where are those rounds going? Where do they land? There's been people killed by stray bullets that have been shot as warning shots or shot off in the air, shot off in the distance. What goes up must come down. Got to think this stuff through, people. Warning shots are not an option. And how many times have somebody been shot in the arm and leg to quote-unquote stop them or slow them down? Uh-uh, not in real life. You want to know why? Because that if it's a scenario where you've been threatened, life and death, in other words, it was you or them, you got no business shooting them in the leg or arm anyway. You shoot them to stop the threat, period. That sounds cruel and harsh, but that's the way it is. Not to mention that if you shot somebody in the arm and leg and they lived... Even if they were a bad guy, they were coming to do you and your family harm. They were robbing you. They were ultimately going to rape your wife or your three-year-old or whatever it is. Whatever the most horrible thing is, and you shoot them in the leg and they live, guess what's going to happen in all likelihood, especially in today's society? They're going to sue you for everything you've got. Or their family's going to sue you and or their family's going to sue you in civil court for everything you got. And what little bit of legal whatever that I've gotten, and I'm not trying to give any legal here because I'm not a lawyer and I'm not going to give legal advice, but the thing that I've been told that that just has stuck with me is it's not that the quote-unquote bad guys have more rights than the good guys do, but at the end of the day, they have the same rights. So again, we have to act intelligently when we act, especially when it comes to the use of firearms. So again... Don't follow Hollywood and TV. Get out there, do your homework, do the research online. There's a lot of bad information, but there's a lot of good. And the guys in the community at your local shop, at your local range, they can get you pointed in the right direction and tell you who to see and maybe even who not to see. But it definitely shouldn't be Hollywood and television. Again, we're kind of covering a lot of different things here. I think in terms of caring for defensive purposes and using a firearm for defensive purposes, but certainly competition and just fun shooting all has a place. When it comes to defensive purposes, though, we need to use ammunition that's intended for defensive purposes. When we're just plinking targets or we're competition shooting, ball ammo is perfectly acceptable. It's meant to just go down range and be wasted and expended. Uh, they even make some pa- more paper-oriented targets like wad cutters and semi-wad cutters you'll see, you'll find, especially if you're reloading your own stuff. But when it comes to defensive purposes, ball ammo, or for that matter, even regular hollow points really don't have a place. It's primarily because that ammo, while yes, it's a bullet and will still hit somebody or something and do damage, it likely won't do the necessary damage to stop the threat. And the more important piece is, again, because 
we're aware of every round we put down range and because we need to be aware of our target and what's beyond it, ball ammo and even regular old hollow points will have a tendency to overpenetrate. So you run the risk in defensive scenarios of that ball ammo continuing on through the body and out the other side, going through the wall and striking whatever's in the next room, hitting the child down on the sidewalk, going through your house, the neighbor's house, striking the baby in the crib next door. We have to be more conscientious about our selections and the things that we think about and do as defensive uh, firearms carriers. And I would just remind you that, you know, ball ammo has no place in the defensive world. Uh, and now, nowadays there are lots of good effective defensive ammo. I'm not going to get into the research here and the statistics and all of that. There's plenty of research for you to find online where you can read about it. But, you know, even nine millimeter today is more effective than it ever was because of the defensive ammo that's available for it today, even when compared to 40 caliber and 45 ACP. And look, I'm not here to do the debate, the classical age old debate of what caliber's right. Again, you're going to find the caliber that's right uh, for you, I'm just illustrate. I'm just talking about the point that with the advancement of defensive ammos, nine millimeter now has been brought more in line with some of the larger, more powerful calibers in the past. And you know, the advantage of nine millimeter is the fact that you know you can carry more on board, so to speak. It's less cost in a lot of cases, especially the defensive stuff. And with nine millimeter, it's it's lower recoil to manage. So. Uh, for all those reasons, you know, uh, defensive ammo makes nine millimeter an option. Not that it hasn't always been an option, but you know what I mean? Just a better option, but nonetheless, you need to find the right defensive ammo for the caliber that you're going to carry for yourself and carry that and not ball ammo, or even, like I said, regular hollow points, cause it's not as effective and you run the risk of, uh, bad over penetration. One of my quick tips here, don't carry your firearms where you aren't supposed to. And look, if you're a law abiding and you've been gotten your permit for concealed carry, then you already know these things. But just a quick reminder, don't carry to federal buildings. You know, don't try to get in the courthouse with your firearm strapped to you because you going in there showing them that your concealed carry permit is not going to do you any good. And a federal building that you don't think about that you may not think about or even be aware of is the United States Postal Service. Do not carry your firearm to the USPS. It'll get you in a heap of trouble. And you certainly don't want to be carrying your firearm to schools. I know there's a debate. There's a debate on armed guards and armed teachers and whether or not a concealed carry permit can come in with their firearm or should be permitted with a firearm. Nope, don't do it. It's not worth it. And plus, when we try to do things we know we shouldn't be doing, it makes the rest of the community look bad. And that's a point we need to keep in mind, too, across the board for all of this stuff. Another safety conscious tip for you uh, is keep your guns locked up. If you're not at home and even if you are at home and you've got kids, especially keep your firearms locked up. We've seen a lot of this in the news in recent past parents not having the firearms locked up and their children being able to get to them. Keep your stuff locked up, 
especially when you have kids. If you don't have that firearm in your hands and your control at all times, it needs to be locked up. Uh, and if you're not at home or you're away on vacation, you're at the office during the day, whatever it is, if firearms at your house, they need to be locked away, uh, especially if you have kids, it's just not an option. And, you know, just a tip to keep in mind there. Yes, locking up your firearms can be a little bit of a hassle if you got kids at home. If you've built out your safe room, which we talked about uh, making your, your home safer a couple of episodes ago. But if you've built out your safe room, you know that's where you keep your defensive firearms staged. But if you're not home or your kids are there, you need to keep those locked up. So while you want to remember to keep them locked up, you do want to be sure to plan for it and, and train for them being locked up so you, A, obviously know how to get to them, but B, you incorporate the timing that you need to get to them and get them unlocked and get them out and up and ready to go in an effective manner. So just that little tidbit to keep in mind, but please, for the gun community, keep your stuff locked up. And with that, that concludes this episode eight of the best gun tips We want to thank you for listening. Be sure to be on the lookout for upcoming podcasts and be sure to tell all of your friends and family about us. See you next time.